Hey everyone, Eric here. A lot more people in Washington and other capitals are focusing more attention on what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa, the Middle East, the Americas. But this isn't an issue that you can simply jump into and expect to understand what's going on. Things are moving just way too fast. And this is a story that really doesn't fit neatly with a lot of the prevailing narratives. And that's why the newsletter that we produce is so important. It's the day-to-day tracking of the story that will help you get up to speed. We meticulously go through hundreds of sources every day to bring you a concise digest of the day's top China news from Africa and throughout the Global South. And then we deliver it straight to your inbox Monday to Friday at 6 a.m. Washington time. Try it free for 30 days. See if you like it. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to revisit the Congo holdup investigation. Now, for those of you who have been following the show, you'll remember from, let's see, it was about four or five weeks ago, right before our Christmas break, we spoke with a pair of reporters from Bloomberg, Michael Cavanaugh and William Klaus, but we're part of the investigative team on this really amazing research report that came out detailing corruption within the Kabila administration, that is the president, Joseph Kabila, who was the predecessor to the current president, Felix Chesikedi. And it details millions of documents that were obtained by the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa and the French news agency Mediapart from BGFI Bank. And if I recall, it was the, it's a Gabonese bank and also the DRC affiliate of it. And if you recall in our conversation with the, the journalist from Bloomberg, we did talk about the fact that the Chinese played a role in all of this, although they were not primary actors in it. And that comes as a little bit of a surprise to some folks because a lot of people associate the sickle means deal, which was then known as the deal of the century for being really a major part of the Kabila era corruption. But when you actually step back and see the true extent of corruption in the Kabila era, uh, this was only one part of it. So it's it's a very interesting report. But Kobus, since our conversation with Bloomberg and since our discussions about Congo holdup. I haven't seen a lot of, of, of follow-up and I haven't seen a lot of aftershocks that I would have expected from a report of this magnitude. What did you, what did, what have you been following and seeing on it? Yes, there was clearly contra- controversy within the Congo for a while. Um, you know, so soon after it was released, but that seems to have been smoothed over quite quickly. And what we, what we're now seeing in the Congo is a lot of, of paid media posts and a lot of a lot of kind of concerted kind of media messaging from both Sikumin and 
and the Chinese embassy kind of smoothing over, you know, kind of all of these controversies and trying to point out all of the kind of infrastructure gains that that the DRC has, has gotten from from its Chinese cooperation. So so it seems like everyone in the DRC seems de- they they all seem determined to kind of move on from this controversy. But of course, you know, kind of I think in in, in civil society and and among the Congolese public, it's different. Yeah, there was a very interesting picture that appeared right before Christmas when the president of China Mali, China Mali is the world's second largest cobalt producer, and and it was very interesting that there was this picture taken of the president of the company sitting with the president of the DRC, Felix Chesikedi. And I wrote back then that this was a very, very staged picture, and a very important picture, because to me, it communicated that all of the tensions and difficulties and the contentious relationship that we've had for the past eight, nine months in the DRC over the mining contracts related to these questions of corruption, related to all of these controversies, uh, is being put behind them. Because the optics of that image was very, very powerful because you know that a senior Chinese executive of that level would never appear in public with the president at the risk of the president then turning around the next day and slamming him or criticizing him or saying something negative. So to me, it spoke to the fact that, as you pointed out, Kobus, that these issues are, are, are settling a little bit. But let's dive into the China side of it. And there was a report that was dedicated entirely to the China angle of the Congo holdup, and it was produced by The Century, uh, which is a group out of Washington, D.C. The report's entitled The Back Channel, State Capture and Bribery in Congo's Deal of the Century. The Century itself was one of the key investigative teams on the Congo holdup project. Uh, John Deloso and Douglas Gillison are two senior investigators at The Century in Washington, D.C. And John, by the way, is also the country lead for the DRC. A very good morning to you, John and Doug. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you on the show, and it's great to be able to deep dive into the China angle and to find out more about your research and the process that you went through to pull together all of these disparate pieces of information. Before we get too deep into it and started on the China side. I want to first talk about the century and ask you a little bit about this organization that you work for, simply because a lot of people are unfamiliar with it. Uh, John, let's start with you as the country lead and also as a senior investigator there. Can you just give us a little background of who the century is, how was it founded, and uh, and, and what the what your mission is? Sure. Uh, I'll try to be somewhat brief, but we are a nonprofit investigative and policy team that focuses on, in effect, financial crime, grand corruption, grand corruption that's linked to violence, uh, grand corruption that's linked to systematic failures in governance. We principally focus on five countries. So we focus on South Sudan, Sudan, the Central African Republic, the DRC, which we're talking about today, of course, and then finally Zimbabwe. Uh, we are going to be expanding into some new countries that are uh, outside of the continent, um, so probably more on that in the future. One thing I did want to clarify is that we're focusing on those countries, but as you see in this report, a lot of times what we're looking at is how foreign actors come into these countries with typically weak governance and high levels of endemic corruption, and how they take advantage of that, uh, you know, the, the weakness in rule of law, Um, to advance certain bilateral priorities, to uh, seek certain commercial benefits, and so on and so forth. Um, So we're not just trying to, 
you know, scold the locals, you could say. We're really looking at who are the key actors in undermining efforts at good governance um, by civil society, by, um, you know, elements within the, the particular government that are seeking to improve the system and make it more responsive to their constituents. So you'll, if you look at our reports, a lot of times what you'll see is that we're looking at outside actors who come in and, um, you know, through whatever means, take advantage of the weakness of the systems where they operate. So we've written about North Korea, we've written about um, American companies, French companies, really you name it. Um, that's really our goal is to, f- to find out who the people are who are the sticking point, so to speak, um, and to expose their activities. So in large part, uh, the organization was founded um, based on a, a, I guess you could call it a frustration, and that is that the founders of the organization, who are um, a former Clinton White House official, John Prendergast, and uh, an individual some of you may have heard of, an actor who goes by the name George Clooney, when they founded the organization, the idea was to bring in people like myself and Douglas, who, whose expertise is in investigating, because of the fact that their av- traditional advocacy efforts were uh, perhaps not yielding the change that they sought. So what they wanted to do was get people like myself and Douglas who are muckrakers to go and look for the stuff that can fuel um, the kind of change that they want to see on the ground. So an interesting point is that a lot of governments, a lot of uh, civil society around the world, um, even media outlets, you could say, don't really invest as much in finding out what's going on in some of these countries, or they don't necessarily invest in finding out what's going on, let's say, vis-a-vis governance or, or grand corruption. And maybe a media outlet is, is doing the typical, uh, you know, they're watching the palace intrigue and the politics. So what we've done and what John Prendergast and George Clooney have done is make a, what I guess you call a strategic investment in trying to uncover hard evidence of grand corruption, financial crime, um, you know, in some cases, grave human rights abuses uh, in places where those things are typically just not that interesting to um, governments or to media outlets. So that's really what we do. We follow, you know, to put it in the bumper sticker form, we follow the dirty money, um, you know, from the beginning to the end. And that's really what Congo Holdup is about, I would say. Okay. Yeah. And just before Cobus is going to start asking some questions on the details of the project, Douglas, I I just want to put something out there is that both George and John are long on the record for being very critical of China's role in Africa and Chinese human rights writ large. You have done a report on China's role in the DR Congo. It begs the question as to whether or not you can maintain a sense of objectivity if your funders are are well-known critics of China. Speak to us a little bit about how you balance that, given the very public backgrounds of John and George. George Clooney, for those of you who remember back in the Olympics, was one of the leading advocates for boycotting the Beijing Olympics because of China's support of the Sudan government in Darfur. John Prendergast uh, was very active in the passage of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, which was a transparency in mining or the conflict minerals. And that had a lot to do with the Chinese and the DRC. Again, Enough Project, which was one of John's earlier initiatives, uh, was very outspoken on the Chinese as well. Speak to us a little bit about that, that obvious apparent contradiction that's there. 
Uh, you know, I had a feeling this question was going to fall to me, and I actually have a lot to say on, on this point. Um, but the first thing I should say, of course, is that I don't speak for the organization as a whole. Um, I'm only one member of one team. But, you know, given the state of f- facts on the ground, there is more than enough justification uh, for us to have focused on uh, on China's engagement with, with the DRC, given the long history of it there. Um, across the continent, of course, inevitably activists who are involved in, um, in, in advocacy for, for human rights and for, for transparency and reform in, in various countries in Africa and trying to end conflict will have had something to say about China. But we are uh, an investigative team and really um, the process of going through all of this information, um, which we had, um, was, uh, was conducted, you know, in a very compartmentalized way. You know, we weren't really discussing it internally in the organization and we were choosing our direction entirely on our own um, in terms of what to look at. Um, and given our um, interest and the importance of resource transparency for the development of the DRC, uh, this story, which was, you know, this is a once-in-a-generation um, opportunity to look into what is going on uh, when, you know, state actors and uh, and state-owned enterprises that with a global mandate like like the ones that featured in our report uh, interact, we, 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 we did, there was no other way to go about this. We had to look at it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to call um, your attention to, you know, a few lines that get, uh, make a small appearance towards the end of the report where we're at pains to say that the, the corruption that we're talking about here is in by no means um, a, 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 an exclusively Chinese phenomenon. Um, uh, the, 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 the unfortunate thing is that, well, the unfortunate thing is one of the consequences of the size of the report and the volume of information that we had is that, uh, you know, the report itself is, is the longest and the most complex we've ever published. And there simply it would collapse under its own weight if we were to begin to discuss in all the necessary detail everything that is raised or implicated by um, by the findings that we come to. So that's one of the reasons I think John and I are very, very glad to have the opportunity to speak to you uh, in this forum because we get to talk about things we didn't have the time to talk about in, in the report. Um, but, you know, I did think it was very, very important that we make time at least somewhere in the conclusions, the introduction, to just to say that we're aware of, you know, all of the misconceptions that are out there. And frankly, listening to your podcast while I was working on this report, it was exceptionally helpful um, to talk to, to hear from people who were aware of, you know, uh, the caricatures that exist in reporting on 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 Africa and Chinese engagement, and frankly, you know, as a reporter in in, in Asia myself, fifteen years ago, if I'd known then what I'd known now, it would have been so helpful to me. Um, but that's one of the things I wanted to say. So this is a report that you know is it comes out of the necessity that's created by you know the the scale, scope and the scale of China's engagement in DRC, which is unparalleled. Um, and not out of any sort of agenda to to demonize um, uh, the People's Republic of China in any way. John, um, so for for listeners who haven't really been following this story in a lot of detail, can you give us the kind of elevator pitch? These investigators received this cache of documents from from um, from a Gabonese bank. What happened then? Like you know, kind of how, what were what were the kind of main findings taking into account that we're talking about thousands and thousands of documents here? Sure. Uh, and I, if I could uh, add a bit of a rejoinder to Douglas's excellent comment, because um, I think the issue you raise is a very important one, Eric. 
and it gets to questions about you know authority and credibility. So I think we should robustly answer them. Um, there are three points that I wanted to make really quickly. One is that, as Douglas said, you know the the scope and scale of you know Chinese state-owned and private company involvement in the DRC is is um, it's remarkable. However, as Michael Cavanaugh and William Clauser Bloomberg mentioned on your uh, earlier podcast when they're talking about Congo Holdup, you know this is something that's fairly underreported. Not a lot of people have written about the modus operandi of um, you know these these diverse this diverse spectrum of con- uh, Chinese actors in the DRC. So, of course, for us, like we want to write about something that is both important and has not been uh, significantly explored. So that's, I would say, a big driver. The other one is, and to get a little bit of prehistory, and I think this is a bit of a teaser into the question you just asked, Kobus, but we knew about the principal actor in this report long before we started working on Congo Holdup. It was a bit of serendipity. We had been tracking this company, this intermediary company, since 2018. At that time, we knew it was important, but we had no idea that its ownership was Chinese. So really, the the key driver in us selecting this story, in large part, was the fact that we knew the company was important. We had some sense of its activity, but we, we didn't know the nationality of its primary owner. So nationality didn't really enter into it until... We got our hands on this wonderful cache of documents. We were able to find out the identity of the person who ran the company. And then finally, another point I wanted to raise was that, you know, Douglas said he listened to your podcast. You know, one of the other things, of course, we did was talk to a lot of experts who know a lot about China and Africa, people who spent their entire careers focusing on it, because we are not China experts. And one of the things we wanted to do was just make sure that, in our uh, investigation, we weren't falling into some of these, you know, analytic or, or other kinds of pitfalls. So I distinctly remember a conversation I had with an international expert on China Africa, and I described in you know somewhat broad terms what I had, what we were seeing, and I said, "What does this make you think?" And this person said, "It makes me think that this looks like every other company that operates in these kinds of areas with weak rule of law. They do what they need to do to get done. They they." seek a commercial advantage over their competitors. And that really stuck with me because I think what it reminded me was what we're talking about here is something that is in large part, despite the geopolitical importance of the, you know, the underlying minerals for infrastructure agreement that we're going to talk about here, in large part what we're talking about is a scrambling for commercial advantage and the various tools and techniques companies will use regardless of their nationality to gain an upper hand. So, Wanted to add that final comment. Um, so your question, to get back to your question, um, Gobis, you asked kind of how we did it. Well, we had a bit of a leg up, and that is that, as I said, we knew about this company that that forms kind of the backbone of our report, Congo Construction Company, a very vague name, a, a good vehicle for um, hiding corruption in a minerals for infrastructure deal. We knew about it since 2018, and over time we were able to kind of chip away at this um, – uh, armor of anonymity or, or uh, transparency around this company, we're able to identify a little bit more of its activity. But only when the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa and media part came in with this leak did we realize the 
the actual scope and scale of what this company was doing, and we were able to identify who was behind it. So we came in knowing what we wanted to focus on. But I will say that when Douglas and I took on this report, we had no idea it would end up being 102 pages with 600 endnotes. It just turned out that this particular company and the particular person who ran it were very, very rich sources of, um, I would say, insight into how uh, companies operate in countries with weak rule of law and how big companies, you know, Western, Chinese, et cetera, use a, a key set of uh, tools and techniques to, to gain, uh, as I call it, a com- kind of commercial advantage in these places. So we knew what we were going to focus on, but we didn't know just how big a story it would be. And Douglas, walk us through the mechanics of how it worked. How does how did MediaPart and and Platform to Protect Whistleblowers in Africa come to you? How did you guys collaborate? What was going to work every day like? Because for those of us who have never worked on a big investigation like this across continents, multiple organizations, you had the media, you had NGOs, you had to keep a certain level of secrecy around it. Talk to us a little bit about the the mechanics and, and how you just went about doing your job to pull together this kind of report. Well, I think one of the main reasons that we were included in this consortium is because we'd already produced uh, investigative reports on the bank at the center of of the entire project, and that's largely due to John's enterprising work before I joined the century. Um, so it, it seemed to me that you know we were natural partners in what we do, and this is also one of the things that makes the Congo Holdup uh, Investigative Consortium unique um, is that it, it, it involves collaboration among advocacy organizations like our own and media partners. Um, now, the, the actual mechanics, of course, are, are something that are, you know, involve aspects that are quite sensitive. I have to be careful about what we say and what we don't say about um, how the information was obtained and where it was stored, etc. But I believe, you know, during uh, your interviews with uh, Michael Kavanaugh and William Clouds, they discussed the fact that there was a sort of centralized um, but discreetly maintained server which held the files which we all had access to. Um, and you could go through... Um, the documents, and it was utterly bewildering at first. This is also my first time ever doing one of these consortiums, which in the era of data dumps and and security breaches and cybersecurity failures is, are becoming ever more important because it's really the only way to go through files uh, of this scope and scale. John and I used to sort of joke that it was like um, uh, the that old Far Side cartoon in which one mosquito says to the other pull out you've hit an artery um you know because it's gonna the mosquito risks bursting um it's just it was just so much that never in my life have i ever had access to such a rich source of information and so you know the earliest parts of this are you know uh it's very much the metaphor is like mining you're 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 prospecting you're looking for deposits of, of valuable information and then you start pulling on threads and when we we started pulling on this there was essentially, you know, it seemed as though there was just no end to the amount of information that would uh, would bring new and more explosive revelations. Um, we'd never seen anything like it, um, but it was a great deal of of work to to sort out, you know, what exactly we needed to find, and then to begin digesting it and uh, and making and weaving it into a narrative, which was an extraordinarily difficult task. But we, we we did our best, as you can see. John, um, one of one of the key figures in this investigation is, is a person called Du Wei, who, who worked to facilitate a lot of a lot of this what what has now emerged as massive, massive, mind blowing corruption. Could you tell us a little bit about who he is? Yes, absolutely. 
do weigh as as you heard when you were discussing with the Blue, Bloomberg correspondence is somebody who's worked in a relatively young guy. I believe he's about forty, just about forty two or forty three at this point. So early forties from Liaoning and somebody who whose education is largely in business, who got involved in Africa. It would seem from an early age. This is based on. You know all kinds of evidence we were we were able to collect during this investigation, but he, it seems that he started working in Africa sometime around uh, 2002. And according to biographical materials he produced, sounds like he has worked across uh, both West and Central Africa. But it would seem, from at least what we've been able to find, that it, that that work was principally focused on the DRC. And just kind of starting chronologically, the earliest instance, the earliest evidence we have of Dewey working on the DRC is, I would say, from his, from a BBC documentary, a BBC news uh, news program, actually, where they went and the BBC correspondent went to, you know, the, the copper and cobalt hinterlands of the DRC and was uh, asking a lot of questions about this uh, minerals for infrastructure deal that we're going to t- to jump into in more detail, I'm certain. And what we found was that the BBC correspondent had a fixer, had somebody who was there watching him, who was uh, ensuring that he was transported around to different uh, sites that were relevant to the project, and that was due way. And then what we found was that a senior figure from one of the largest individuals shareholder in, uh, in the Minerals for Infrastructure joint venture uh, China Railway, which is a state-owned company, one of their big bosses, as they said, came in from Beijing and met with the BBC correspondent, and Du Wei was interpreting for him and driving around, you know, the crack big boss and the BBC correspondent. So then after that, we we found a number of other biographical materials, not to dwell too long in the details here, but, but th- just a really fascinating portrait. Um, this is somebody I would love to interview or hear interviewed. But he worked for Sikomines. That's the joint venture that's you know pulling the the copper out of the ground um, for this minerals for infrastructure deal. For it seems uh, three years, so 2009 until uh, almost four years, 2009 to 2012. At which point, as you heard from Bloomberg, he left the joint venture and then started working for the principal Congolese government agency, the BCPSC, the the Coordination Bureau just run by a man named Moise Congo, who's kind of Mr. China, or was Mr. China under Joseph Kabila. So uh, Du Wei worked for that agency as a consultant for years. Um, it seems like perhaps up until 2018, so so as much as six years. And then not long after he started working for the government, he sets up this company that has the very vague name Congo Construction Company, or CCC. And despite the, despite the name, Congo Construction Company, uh, we can tell you, really did no construction work. It didn't have any activities that were in line with what one would expect from a construction company. So Duway is, in effect, working for the Congolese government as a consultant, running this private company that has a Congolese lawyer as one of the, as a minority shareholder. And at key points when this minerals for infrastructure deal, which is incredibly important for the DRC and also for China, we see that this con- company, Congo Construction Company, starts routing money to uh, people in Kabila's orbit, to put it uh, simply. And in the world of corruption studies, 
when somebody who exists between the principal, let's say in this case, the Chinese state-owned companies and the uh, government and is routing money towards uh, a government, you call that person a middleman or an intermediary. And that's a known corruption risk. A lot of people use intermediaries. A lot of businesses use intermediaries to get things like, you know, uh, permits and, you know, whatever the, the work that's down in the weeds that you need to get involved in if you're a, um, a, a very large company operating abroad. But there's also a category of intermediary that does things like deliver, you know, envelopes of cash. And that's precisely what Congo Construction Company existed to do. And another fascinating thing about Duway is that he's an academic, which Michael Cavanaugh mentioned on your, your podcast where you were talking about their uh, article. Du Wei was writing about the minerals for infrastructure deal and certain barriers it was facing and also um, certain difficulties around operating in, in an environment like the DRC at the exact same time that he was operating this intermediary company whose purpose was to route money to Congolese power brokers to overcome certain obstacles that the Chinese state-owned companies were encountering. So it's really through the looking glass stuff. So we have this guy who's commenting about a deal academically from a detached, you know, uh, very analytic perspective, while he's also a participant in that, uh, in that deal. It kind of reminds me of gonzo journalism with Hunter S. Thompson. You're, you're writing about a thing, but also participating in the thing. So this guy's writing about obstacles at the same time that he's writing money to overcome them. Um, and there's some other details in the back end of Douay um, that we could talk about. We don't think he was just an intermediary for the joint venture involved in this minerals for infrastructure deal. There are a couple of other areas, a couple of other Chinese companies where Douay seems to have been a, a bit of a Mr. Fix-It, but perhaps we can get into that a little bit later. Yeah, we're going to get into Sikomins and and the origins of that and, and the big money that was involved in that. And but before, I just want to stay on Douay for a little bit here because he seems like a very unlikely character in all of this. This is a guy who doesn't come from a well-connected family, as far as I can tell, in Beijing, who's powerfully connected with the Communist Party, who comes with a lot of money, wealth, and connections. He, he, he doesn't have a lot of legitimacy or credibility in the Congo, that he has to earn all of that and build it up himself. And it just seems unusual to me. Was it because he was in the right place at the right time? Was he an opportunist? What kind of personality did you kind of put on him, because obviously you didn't get a chance to speak with him. He's, he's probably long gone from the Congo right now. But help us understand a little bit about who he was, because it seems like a quirky character. The question about his personality is a, is an interesting one. I don't know that I can really answer that. I, I don't want to presume to be able to get inside somebody's head. But what I can tell you is that this person, I would think, is important, um, does have some sort of uh, you know important familial or personal connections uh, back in China that that got them in the position they were from the outset. So I remember Douglas and I were scratching our heads at some point saying, man, this guy has really got up to some important work quite young. And we, I think, somewhat self-consciously reflected on what we were doing at that age. This guy is, you know, he's acting as a fixer. He's uh, for some really important companies doing some really important work. He had companies that he had set up in his early 20s with some people who appear to be powerful businessmen in China. He was active from an early age. And another interesting thing is that he studied kind of in the midst of the scandal that forms the basis of our report. Du Wei was uh, studying for a PhD in international law at Wuhan University. 
And we did a little bit of digging, and I'm conscious of the fact that we're not China experts, so I don't want to attribute too much um, importance to something that may not really be that important, but perhaps some of your listeners will, will do a little bit of digging. But Duwei's advisor at Wuhan University appears to be somebody quite important. I think she has some involvement with you know high-level political vehicles in China. I, I don't know precisely what it means, but she does seem to be somebody of, of, of no limited importance. And anyway, there, there's so much we don't know about Du Wei, but what we know is he was put in an important position to do important work from an early age. And, and, and that's really, I would say, all we can say without actually talking to the guy, which of course we tried to do many, many times. That's that's probably all I could say at this point about it without speculating too much. If, if I could only add, you know, the one the thing that struck me um, the most when I became more acquainted with this guy is, you know, uh, how young he was when he started to form, you know, anonymous off-the-shelf corporations in the British Virgin Islands. I, I don't, I am not a sinologist, I'm not a China expert as, uh, at all, um, but I have to wonder how many, you know, pluckish, 20-somethings from the hard scrabble northeast in, in, in Daoning in China have those sorts of connections. So to us, it seemed as though, you know, he was not plucked off, um, you know, out of the construction site to go be, you know, the English-speaking interpreter for the BBC. He was somebody who was not working manual labor in, way back in 2008. He was somebody who was present at the creation of this entire venture and saw it, you know, through to completion, through to... Um, with the signing of a, a crucial infrastructure contract in 2016, um, in which his company routed money straight from the joint venture into into Kabila's pocket, effectively. So he is a mystery, as John says, um, but he's a very intriguing one. As you both have pointed out, like to, to a certain extent, you know, this is this is obviously crazy levels of corruption, but a certain level of corruption is kind of part of the deal in terms of doing business in, in the DRC. I think the DRC has become notorious as, you know, kind of for that. That said, did you get a, a kind of an impression of, of how deep the knowledge of this corruption and kind of complicity in this corruption went on the on the Chinese side, particularly um, you know, obviously these are these are state-owned enterprises. Like, did, did you get an uh, you know an impression of how high up in those state-owned enterprises the knowledge of this of these deals went, and then also where, like what the kind of level of contagion was beyond that? You know, kind of in or or then awareness was you know on, on the Chinese government side. I think it's fair to say that the level of knowledge of who Du Wei was and roughly if not what he was doing, what he, what his role was, must have gone pretty high because on the one hand, we have, uh, as I said, this 2008, 2007, 2008, I don't recall which year, BBC news program where Duway is, again, um, chaperoning a crack big boss and interpreting for him with a, a correspondent doing a, um, I assume, fairly well-watched uh, news program for the BBC. So we have that. We also have Duway, in effect, working for the the Coordination Bureau, the major Congolese government agency, which is is um, renowned for its lack of transparency. That government agency is a key nexus between the Chinese companies operating in the joint venture and the Congolese government. It's probably the principal nexus. So Duway was working directly for that agency. So it could not have gone unnoticed by these Chinese state-owned companies that are involved in the minerals for infrastructure deal that a guy who used to, it seems, work for them was working as a consultant for the very Congolese government agency 
that's overseeing things like financing and uh, coordination, et cetera. So I find it implausible that there wouldn't have been, at least from the Chinese state-owned company side, deep knowledge of who Du Wei was and what he was doing there. In fact, I would say it's it's a near certainty that, that um, Du Wei was not a- operating on his own and was most likely, again, operating as an intermediary for those same state-owned companies. And we go into the rationale for why we say that in the report in some depth. So I, I would suggest if people are interested in the nature of that relationship, they, they read the report. But there are two other cases I wanted to highlight where Du Wei operates as an intermediary for Chinese private companies, one of which is state-backed. We mentioned China molybdenum at the start, Eric. There's a vignette in the, towards the end of our report where we talk about this remarkable series of dealings with mining permits in the DRC in the west of the country in an area that's quite rich in phosphates. And what happened is that a company we have associated with the Kabila family that's, that was formed in the British Virgin Islands and thus very difficult to get hands on documents that say these, these are the owners. But that company had a whole block of mining permits in the west of the DRC. It, through various mechanisms we do not understand, in large part because um, you know all of these activities were not, strictly speaking, legal, but the, the company transferred a small mining permit to Congo Construction Company, Duway's company. And then not long after that, uh, Kabila Company transferred the mining permit to uh, Duway's company, China Molybdenum came in and bought that permit for $40 million. So we have on the one side, we have the Kabila's, on the other side of the deal, we have China molybdenum. As you said, the second largest cobalt producer in the world, a very important company. And, and I had not seen the picture of the head of China molybdenum meeting with Sacchetti, but that is quite interesting indeed. But our, our friend, Du Wei, who is acting as an intermediary for Sycomines, the joint venture in the minerals for infrastructure deal, also acted as an intermediary in a deal involving China molybdenum. And then finally, there's another anecdote that's somewhat buried in the report, but there was a there was a bank in the DRC, sec, uh, maybe third largest, fourth largest bank in the DRC, called BIAC. This is a huge scandal at the time, but it collapsed. Um, our understanding is that there was government intervention, and that government inter- intervention was stopped, and that caused a run in the bank, and the bank uh, failed. And at the point where the bank was liquidating its assets, a Chinese company that had no involvement in Africa, no involvement outside of Sichuan province, came into the DRC and miraculously set up a bank in the DRC overnight. It got all the licensing, etc. Lo and behold, I interviewed somebody who was senior at the bank BGFI, and they told me that that basically the way that company, which is called Taiha Group, got into the DRC was by virtue of Du Wei. So this is a company that exists in Sichuan. is purely, you know, provincial, I guess you could say, in China, has no involvement uh, abroad and somehow gets involved in this incredibly tricky, highly corrupt country in Central Africa where, you know, if you don't, if you don't know what you're doing, I'm sure, you know, you could easily be hoodwinked. And it, lo and behold, it's Du Wei who makes the introduction. So the, I, I think that implies, not to, to dwell on this too long, but I think that implies that there was an understanding that Du Wei was somebody you go to if you need to get things done. He sounds like a just a really smart guy. I mean, as you pointed out, how many 20-somethings, forget about the fact that how many 20-somethings from Liaoning can figure this kind of thing out. How many 20-somethings from anywhere in the world can figure this kind of thing out? So, I mean, at a minimum, 
he seems like a very interesting character, and he is a central figure in in this drama. And he comes he comes out strongly both in your reporting and in the Bloomberg reporting. So I recommend everybody to take a look at that and to focus on the character uh, that is Duway. Let's step back from Duway a little bit and kind of go to the higher level and look at Sicko Means. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Sicko Means, uh, you've heard a lot about it in the news, especially over the past year. This is a you know, the granddaddy of the minerals for infrastructure deals that the Chinese were doing in Africa dates back to 2007, if I recall. And that's when the Democratic Republic of Congo and China both kind of came together and said, listen, you have something we need. We have something you want. We need your minerals. You need our infrastructure. Let's make a deal. The original deal was $9 billion. And then it, it, that caused a lot of consternation outside of China. The IMF got involved. They scaled that down to about $6 billion by the time they actually signed the deal in 2009. And the problem that we've had today, now 10 years later, is that civil society groups, even President Felix Chesikedi, say that the deal, when it was struck back in the day in 2009, was unfair to the Congolese side. In fact, there are reports that the Congolese didn't even read the deal. There are some reports that much of the language was in Chinese. They went to Beijing. They didn't really need. They didn't really do it in part because money was flowing into the Kabila family through some of the Congo holdup investigations that you've un uh, uncovered. And, and really, at the end of the day, this was more about putting money in the right pockets than it was about building the infrastructure. Now, when I lived in the, in the DRC back in 2010, I could see the benefits of the deal, which came in the form of what was called the Cinq Chantiers. The Cinq Chantiers are these big five public works and that Kabila used as part of his re-election campaign. Let's fast forward now to 2021, and Felix Chesikedi comes on the stage. He goes to Katanga, which is where Sicko Means is headquartered. And he basically calls out the director general of Sicko Means and says, you're not living up to your deal. I don't see the infrastructure. I drove up the roads and I haven't seen it. We put some great video of Chesikedi really just ripping into the, the, the head of Sicko Means back in May. And it was really a, a, a seminal moment in all of this. So, Douglas, let's come to you now about the Sycamines deal. Explain to us the role that it plays in your investigation and, and help us understand about the scope of the corruption. How much money are we talking about here? Is it tens of millions, hundreds of millions? What's the scope of corruption that we're dealing with here? Well, maybe I'll take that question backwards um, uh, and start with the, the the amount of bribery that we're looking at. <clears throat> the figure that we come up with is about fifty five million dollars. The 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 um, the slush fund at the center of the report, the Congo Construction Company. We have we were able to review its accounts from beginning to end, and we see the total amount of money flowing in and out is sixty five million dollars before the accounts are closed. And it looks, um, according to our analysis, um, as though the end the company sort of switches polarity and starts moving money out rather than moving money in. Sorry, can I just interrupt you? So $55 million, that's the corruption that went to Kabila, his associates, his relatives from various Chinese stakeholders involved in the Sikou Means deal, right? Yes. I mean, it, the facts are rarely are seldom so tidy, but effectively, yes. If you, Our analysis is all of that money was essentially to benefit, benefit the Kabila world. Is that a lot or a little? Because honestly... For a deal the size of $6 billion, $55 million, it doesn't actually strike me as that large of a number. You're entirely right. It isn't. It's very much on the lower end of, uh, of bribes paid in major corruption scandals across the African continent in, in, um, 
in, in resources deals. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of, I don't know how familiar you guys are because it doesn't involve China, but, you know, the, the Bonnie Island uh, joint venture um, uh, corruption scandal back in 2008 to 2012, the, the contract amount to build liquid natural gas uh, infrastructure on that island in um, in, 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 in Nigeria was about $6 billion. So it's roughly comparable. The bribes paid were about $180 million, uh, in that case by, uh, you know, Keller, Brown and Roots, Nampergetti, Technip, and, and this Japanese company, Japan Gasoline Corporation, or JGC. Um, you know, so the, 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 the dollar amounts, I, I think we were at pains to, to say in our report, are not the best gauge um, of the importance of this event. Really, the stakes involve, you know, the hopes of uh, Africa's third largest country um, and, you know, the attempt to put right, you know, the situation after so many successive wars and so many million people dead. Um, so, you know, it, it, is, it is also only, I think, a, perhaps a slice of what was going on at the time. But, <clears throat> but $55 million, I think, is, uh, is, you know, in line with but on the lower end of, of what you'd see normally across the continent in, in, May, in, in, in the largest, in largest corruption scandals that have come to light. If you could just give us a little bit of background on the Sycamines part of all of this as well. So, uh, as I said, there was, you know, there were successive wars that began in the 1990s. Laurent Désiré Kabila, who was, is the, was the father of, of Joseph Kabila, was this um, sort of hapless Marxist rebel who'd been waging a campaign against Kinshasa for, for decades and becomes the face of an, of an invasion, essentially, by Rwandan and Ugandan forces in, in 1996, 1997, to topple Mobutu. Um, and he is in power for four years. He's assassinated in 2001, and his son Joseph becomes becomes president in the wake of his father's assassination, and he is a very different character. He sets about essentially trying to negotiate peace regionally to end another conflict that that um, that took place after Laurent Désiré Kabila took power in '97, and he begins to uh, you know the, the country begins to transition towards uh, multi-party democracy, um, and and Laurent Désiré Kabila, sorry Joseph Kabila is elected in 2006. And his political fortunes are very much tied to his pledge that, you know, the uh, decades of plunder and kleptocracy and war and neglect uh, will come to an end and Congo will rebuild. Um, and as you said earlier, he, his, the, the name, the catchphrase for this, this message that he sells his, his, um, his, uh, his political message on is called the Cinq Chantiers, the five building sites. And one of the five uh, building sites is definitely infrastructure because there is so little of it in the country. They're so, it's so hard to get markets to good, uh, goods to market. It's so hard to, uh, to turn on the light, um, uh, to, to, to ship goods as well. So that, that happens. And in, in 2011, he's reelected. But that point, in my view, is, I think, is pivotal because we don't see the bribery begin until Kabila's second term, which uh, is ostensibly, you know, he becomes what you'd call in the United States a lame duck president. He can't be reelected. Um, and that at that point, you know, um, the, the pledge of reconstruction, uh, reconstruction with Chinese help is no longer so helpful to Kabila because he's not campaigning anymore to stay in office. It's uh, up in the air as to whether or not he'll actually agree to step down. Uh, and he does pr prolong his time in office past his constitutionally mandated uh, end of his second term, but he's not campaigning. And so th at that point, it becomes, you could argue that the, the Chinese need him more than he needs them. 
And that's when the money starts to flow into his pocket to make sure that, uh, you know, all of the, uh, the legal changes and regulatory um, boxes that have to be ticked in order to make this a successful and viable, a commercially viable project uh, are, are come into play. Um, you know, we, we talk about um, in the report the, the need to enact tax exemptions for the joint venture and also to conclude a deal on the construction of a hydropower dam, um, which was in the news again yesterday, the, the Busanga hydropower dam. Um, uh, and that, that is essentially, all of that coincides very neatly with, um, with the money that's flowing in. So the, the $55 million figure is, is only one way to see it. Um, another way to see it is sort of uh, as, a, as a pivotal moment in, in the use of state power. Um, uh, between two major uh, major players in this drama, a third way of seeing it is, you know, kind of is the the kind of ongoing drama of foreign involvement in the Congo's in the Congo itself, and and then also not only on the Chinese side, but also the the role of all of these other foreign players. So, among, so you, the report points out that that you know the the transfer of these large sums of money had to be okayed by international banking partners. And you single out um, Citibank and Commerzbank in in Germany as having okayed millions and millions of dollars of very shady um, transfers with with without querying it. Um, can you talk a little bit about those those connections? Sure. I mean, if you if you if you weed your way wend your way through the report, you'll find uh, a picture of uh, a wire transfer form that says, you know, $9 million to Congo Construction Company for snacks. I mean, it doesn't effectively say that, but it says payment. So the, uh, the, um, the remittance information is just one word. Um, and you'd think that a money of that sum would have to have some sort of uh, justifying, back to, um, some sort of backing documentation. But it's signed by the finance director for the joint venture, um, which is controlled by CREC, the, um, uh, the China Railway Group. Um, and that goes through um, Citibank uh, with no problem. Uh, it just goes; it just sort of lands in um, in CCC's accounts without any compliance inquiries. Um, because, and we're able to see that because the compliance inquiries inevitably show up in the emails when somebody uh, in in Frankfurt or uh, in London or, or Madrid or wherever sends an email to. The bank and says, "Who is this? Um, you know, uh, please explain what this is for. Uh, what justifies this enormous sum? That happens occasionally. It didn't happen in this case, um, and so you know, none of this could have happened without the complicity, or not not the complicity is not the word I should use, but without uh, regulatory failures on the part of uh, of the major financial players, um, and you know, their involvement might not, in a practical sense, have been." Uh, very deep, but at least they um, played this pivotal role. So you you have to wonder how much longer this could go on. But but effectively, yes, they did play a very important role um, because they had visibility into the entire network of financial players. John, let's wrap up our discussion with you and and step back and, and get the big picture. We've zigzagged all over the place on this report. It is a confusing report. It's a confusing story. Very complex, as you've pointed out. Uh, you guys did a great job in trying to put some order to it. But what do you want people to take away from from your findings and from your research? What's the key the key takeaway and the recommendations that you have? The recommendations are probably just as complex as the report uh, because they cover a lot of ground, but. You know, if I could maybe simplify it a bit, in terms of the DRC government, we, you know, of course recommend that the independence of certain agencies that have the remit to investigate financial crime 
and you know corruption and malfeasance um, have that authority uh, redoubled, and that those institutions also conduct investigations independently and with the appropriate resourcing of the activities that we describe in our report. And you know that, of course, covers everything from uh, apparent corruption by a, a current member of the uh, president's cabinet all the way to, you know, these transfers of, of money from Sicko Means, which is at least in part owned by the DRC government through this intermediary company that uh, wasn't really doing anything except, you know, playing operator with cash, basically. So so that's, that's the one thing on the DRC side. Um, and then I think another big... Uh, Another big part of the recommendations for the DRC are, of course, <clears throat> we want we we would like their, and I think we very broadly would like their banking sector to be um, reinforced, its integrity to be reinforced, because none of this could have happened um, without there having been a private bank in the DRC that was, you know, to put it in a, a very simply captured by. The brother of the um, the president at the time, Joseph Kabila. So, if a bank can be if a bank is controlled by somebody who has the right connections and ill intent, clearly a lot of bad stuff can happen. And, and for those of you who have been following the Congo holdup investigation, we're talking about you know upwards of hundred million dollars in public money that could have gone to you know pay for life saving medications and and roads and hospitals and books and, you know, you name it, um, that, that went poof, you know, went, it went into the, the, into private hands and, and did who knows what that money will probably never see the light of day again, probably never be recovered. So the DRC, you know, both private sector and, and government should try to make sure that their banking sector is, is the, its integrity is reinforced because as you know, the, the strength and health of a banking sector plays a huge part in the strength and health of the economy, which, of course, plays a huge role in the quality of life of the people in that country. And, you know, if you have these elites who are going to be fine either way, you know, running roughshod over both, you know, domestic and international regulations uh, in the banking sector, you know, it, in the end, you know, there's so, been so many negative revelations about the DRC banking sector. You know, some of these big players could just say, you know what, I've had enough. And, you know, we're not going to do business with these people anymore. And in fact, a lot of banks have already done that. And that affects things like, you know, the ability of a local businessman to get a loan to, to expand his operations or, you know, you name it. So, you know, this, this has harm. So that's another big part of the recommendations within the DRC is, you know, tighten up the ship and the, the banking sector. But then one thing that I wanted to go back to that Douglas mentioned, and this is a big part of the recommendations, and it's also a big misconception about this report. Probably should have mentioned this earlier. This is about China and substantially. It's about a, a you know a Chinese national operating in the DRC at the behest of Chinese state-owned companies to advance a deal. However, uh, you know, as you pointed out, Cobus, almost all this money went through Western banks. So what does that say about the you know, responsibility on the part of these Western banks? How is it that one of the biggest and most sophisticated banks in, uh, in the world could you know, stamp okay on a transfer that Douglas described as being you know, $9 million for snacks, which is you know, a humorous way to put it, but it's absolutely spot on. So one of the things we say is, listen, these big banks need to do a better job because these acts of corruption – while you know the the principal the people 
you know, tr- pushing the, the corrupt practices were in large part, you know, uh, Chinese nationals or Chinese companies. And, and I assume that's a big part because the demand signal is always there from the Congolese side to get to get a little something, you know, um, outside of the confines of a, a deal, strictly speaking. But the Western banks have a huge responsibility here. So one of the things we say is, listen, authorities in the U.S. in particular, because this is almost entirely in these transfers are almost entirely conducted in U.S. dollars, need to investigate this because this could not have happened. Like if, if for example, um, you know, Duway had tried to move nine million dollars to, uh, you know, Kabila people in the Kabila universe. And Citibank had said, no, I do not approve your request to transfer uh, this amount of money for snacks. And they had said, listen, give me a contract that underlies this transfer. And what would have been the response? As we saw in uh, a lot of the Congo holdup data regarding Congo Construction Company, when there was a challenge on the compliance front, typically the people who were uh, you know, trying to advance these um, payments kind of hemmed and hawed and shuffled their feet and, and a lot of times didn't act or what they offered as justification was comical. I mean, there's a there's an invoice at the end of our report that we take apart uh, that was used in support of a you know I think multi million dollar or million dollar transfer, and it's I mean it's like you know whatever like uh, finger paint. <laughs> it's just it's preposterous. So it's not just the DRC government needs to do quite a bit. Western banks need to do quite a bit. Western law enforcement agencies and entities need to do quite a bit to make sure this kind of thing does not happen. Um, and, you know, there are so many other recommendations. I would recommend people read the report, of course, to get a sense for the scope and scale of the problem we're talking about and also some remedies that our policy experts came up with um, to at least, you know, reduce the likelihood that this would happen again. Um, but that's it in large part. Like, give investigators, government investigators, independence and resourcing they need to do their work and investigate all these activities to find out um, who knew what, when, and to hold those people responsible who did nothing or did very little or were negligent in preventing this kind of activity from taking place. The report is The Back Channel State Capture and Bribery in Congo's Deal of the Century. It was written by John Deloso and Douglas Gillison, senior investigators at The Century in Washington, D.C., Thank you both for taking the time to join us. If people want to download the report and want to follow what you guys are reading and writing, what's the best way for them to get in touch? John, let's start with you. Well, if you want to get the report, uh, go to www.thecentury, that's S is in Sam, E-N-T-R-Y dot O-R-G. Um, you'll be able to see not only this report, but reports and, and uh, investigative reports and analysis we've done on the other countries we discussed. For me, I mean, the best way would probably be Twitter, although I'm not particularly active. That is, uh, the handle is J, as in John, underscore D as in David, E-L-L-O, S as in Sam, S as in Sam, O. Yeah, we absolutely welcome, if anybody knows anything about uh, the activities we described in this report or has something that you know they think we should know about, whether it's a, a lead on you know, what have you, or it's just an academic paper that might be of interest to us, given what we've written about in this report. We'd love to hear from you. uh, So please do reach out. Fantastic. And Douglas, are you on Twitter? I am. I am at Douglas Gillison, uh, Gillison, G-I-L-L-I-S-O-N. And I will put links to the report as well as John and Douglas's Twitter handles. John, Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Congratulations on the report. 
Delighted to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Kobus, I'm so glad we had that chance to focus in on just the Chinese role out of the whole Congo holdup investigation. It's a big, big investigation. And I guess the thing that that surprises me is that is that $55 million number. Now, again, both mentioned that you can't judge this on the dollar value alone, but I was expecting for a deal as big as the Sikomins deal at $6 billion, originally started $9 billion, that you were going to see much larger numbers than $55 million. Early on, Africa Confidential, they reported that it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars that went to the, the Kabila family. So it appears that that number's been downgraded to 55. Still a lot of money, no doubt, but much less than I would have expected. Well, you know, that's, a, that's a very kind of like glass half full reading of it. Yeah, you know, kind of I, I, I assume that some of those, you know, as, as they go through all of these thousands of documents, those numbers might still be adjusted. But, but you know, kind of if one thinks about what $55 million could buy in, in the DRC, you know, it could it could it could clothe a few a few school children, you know. So so in that sense, you know, it's it's really tragic. I don't know about I mean, we, we say that about the United States as well. If we see one F thirty five aircraft could could fund all schools in America for you for a year. That's that's an academic argument, though, because that's just not the way things work. Mm, but I mean, if you think about, for example, the you know all of all of the the kind of complaints about affording climate change mitigation, for example, right? Kind of like money, money is money, you know. So, so you know that that money would could have been used in in a in a different way, particularly in the in the DRC. I see your point, and, and it's just money leaving the DRC or just being misallocated in the economy, so it's not being put to a productive use. I mean the. The larger issue is also is that it's, it's as 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 they say you know kind of it's it, it's not only the corruption or it's not only that particular money, it's once once you are in a in a society where you know kind of where that level of of money is is being transferred as bribes, then that affects already affects the entire way that that society works. And you know, so you know, for example, so South Africa now has the the Zondo Commission, which was just in investigating corruption under the previous president Jacob Zuma, has just released this like brick of a, like eight hundred page report, you know, about about institutionalized corruption in 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 South Africa, and again. You know, like the, one one can pick up the numbers, but the, but the, but I, I you know as someone who's lived here, you know, kind of during the Zuma tenure, like one of the things that 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 it makes clear is that kind of perceptions of corruption and perceptions that things are going wrong because people are are kind of profiting from it, or that nothing will ever go right, nothing will ever work, or no no new initiative has any future because everyone assumes that it's already corrupt. There's nothing more corrosive than that. You know, kind of there's no, there's nothing kills a society more than that kind of like lack of trust. Um, and it's all, almost impossible to get back. Like once, you know, kind of once it's clear that that is how your, your country's system works, it's very difficult to be like, okay, well, everyone now vote, everyone now believe in institutions, you know, um, because no one believes in anything anymore. Um, and, you know, kind of, an, and having seen, you know, South Africa, I think in the 90s was one of the most hopeful societies in the world because they were, you know, it's not only that they, that they achieved liberation from, from apartheid, it, they, they, they then went on to build all of these institutions, these public institutions that were then kind of going to ensure that things are going to be running okay. And of course, now all of those institutions have been captured. 
And so where do you go from there, right? Kind of like how, how do you inspire, you know, kind of a young South African that, no, no, everything is still going to be okay. It's almost impossible to do. And and, and the, the, I think that is at times a billion in the Congo, I think. I think the value of this report is not that it's going to cause a bombshell and resignations and, you know, all of this transparency will bloom now throughout the DRC. That, that's obviously not going to happen. That has not happened. Life has moved on since this report came out. But what it does is it provides a richer, fuller understanding of how this important deal went down. Who were the central characters? What were the, where did the monies flow? What were the key issues? I think so for researchers and for journalists and for other analysts looking at this issue, the Congo holdup investigations and the work that the century's done are important contributions to that. And I think so on that on that front, I think the expectations that it was going to have some big transformational output, again, not that anybody was necessarily saying that, but that sometimes when you launch these big reports, there's that hope that you'll see an immediate impact. I don't think that's the immediate impact. I think the long-term impact of having more information is going to be far more valuable. For me, also one of the really one of the really great things about the report, and and uh, you know, is that it it makes it impossible to just to just push a simple narrative of oh the Chinese are say for example the Chinese are colonizing Africa right kind of that Chinese are just sucking Africa dry that narrative you can't read those reports and simply log you know kind of support that narrative because it makes clear that this is a triangular situation right kind of there's a chi- there's a chinese leg and the chinese are deeply complicit i mean whichever you know the the uh, in this case this particular chinese company and this is not to you know to 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 generalize about all chinese involvement of course but then um the the Africans are deeply deeply complicit, and Western institutions are deeply complicit. Like this is a triangular situation. It's not one of like oh the Chinese are so bad, or the Westerners are so bad, or the Africans are so corrupt. All three of those have to be involved, and they were all involved. Well, that's a good place to end it. A fascinating discussion. If you are interested in this topic, I highly recommend that you listen to our interview from last month with William Klaus and Michael Kavanaugh from Bloomberg, who also uh, did work on the Congo holdup investigation. I'll put links to that in the show notes as well. Again, I'll have links to all of the reports uh, that the Century's done and also that Bloomberg has done. It's a fascinating report. It's really added a lot. So I'm glad we had this chance to speak with two sides of the investigations. That'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. We'd like to invite everybody to join us both as subscribers to our weekly or daily uh, newsletters and you get full access to the to all of the articles on our website some 4,000 articles now in the archives that are there almost 700 podcasts so if you're looking into this topic and you're interested in following these issues uh, our, our our website is a great resource for that and we've made subscriptions intentionally very very low price and affordable so that everybody can can join only seven dollars a month for students and teachers and fifteen dollars a month for everybody else or 149 dollars a year we also have a patreon community for those of you who just want to support the show and we thank all of our patreon members uh you mean so much to us we're doing weekly uh, updates on patreon as well as videos and zoom meetings and happy hours and lots of cool things there so uh, we'd love for you to join us on patreon at patreon.com slash china africa project so until next week for Cobus van staden i'm eric olander thank you so much for listening the discussion continues online 
head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.